This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, Larry Dunn, the man who ushered in a new era in organised crime and introduced the plague of heroin in Ireland. In the early 1980s, parts of Dublin were ravaged by heroin. I've been broken into, that woman's been broken into. And if you've seen them over there in the lane, Injecting themselves, day in and day out. I, I remember one time I used to be able to walk, you know. I used to be able to do anything at one time, you know. Just sick, sick, sick. There's lots of bad things about it. When, you, when, you, when you're sick and when you need it, well. My boy was carrying for them, all over, at 12 years of age. This is your boy now who's an adult? Yes. Well, he's getting treatment at the moment. He was carrying for them, he was, at 12 years of age. And nobody was in any doubt about who was to blame. And for 100 years, he should have got right. A lot of them, and anyone belongs to him. There's plenty more Larry Duns around it, and we, everybody will have to stand together and root them all out. That's what I say. Local communities and some trailblazing politicians did what they could to raise awareness and make public the extent of the problem. That each year, over the last few years, 10 young people, mainly in the inner city areas of Dublin, have died from heroin use. And this year, already so far this year, 10 have died. So that struggle has to go on. And the community is certainly playing its part, even as we saw here today, and will continue to play its part to destroy the heroin barons, as they're called. But Larry Dunn always seemed one step ahead even when caught. Dunn, who's now 37, had been on bail. The search for him became nationwide and police forces in other countries were also asked to look out for him. I'm Siobhan McGuire and on today's episode I'm joined by Irish Independent Special Correspondent Paul Williams to hear more about Larry Dunn, the godfather of heroin, his family life, his siblings and the legacy that is still being felt in the capital city centre today. Paul, Larry Dunn is the subject of a new Sky documentary Dublin Narcos, and he's known as the man who introduced heroin into Ireland, but he wasn't on his own. So what do we know about Larry's upbringing, his childhood, his siblings, the the Dunn family in itself? Larry Dunn is very much yeah, the pivotal figure in the story of heroin in Ireland because he's blamed uh, as for bringing in the first shipments, him and his other brothers. But his fa- family are also quite fascinating in, in that they were the first, would you call, truly dedicated crime family in Ireland. 
Uh, also, they were responsible for ushering in a whole new era of what we now call today organized crime. They grew up in the south inner city and they spent more, they moved, they were in tenements initially and then they went out to houses to live in a proper house, a corporation house in Crumlin. But they lived in abject poverty. The father was a drunk, a wife beater, um, a petty criminal. He spent a lot of time in prison. He went to prison for, uh, at one stage, for uh, manslaughter. His, Their mother was a very hard-working woman, hard-drinking woman too. She had a very tough life. She had a very big family of kids. Um, and uh, she worked as a market uh, stall owner. And literally the kids grew up, as I say, in abject poverty, hand-to-mouth. Christy Jr., uh, as in the eldest brother of the family, Bronco, who's still alive uh, and still complaining that he was always misunderstood, uh, he was the first person, obviously, to get involved in crime. He was a very big character, a very colourful uh, character. And he began his criminal career in the late 60s and over time and then of course in the late 60s just for, for to put in context for our listeners um, you had the outbreak of troubles in Northern Ireland you had the IRA funding their war so-called war in the north by robbing banks here they showed a whole new generation of criminals how to do it and Christie was the first one of the first to get involved in that and he brought then Larry into the so-called family business and one after another seven of seven or eight of the brothers then became involved in armed robbery and they became the first dedicated proper armed uh, robber family so to speak um, and they for example uh, brought Larry brought uh, a guy called Martin Cahill um, a young uh, burglar on his first armed robbery in the early 70s about night 73, 74 and that armed robber then became the notorious general because he took to it like a duck to water um, and so over time they became the first notorious crime family in Ireland and they taught people like John Cunningham John Cunningham is a partner in crime with Christy Kinahan Sr um, they taught the Mitchells they ran would have run at one stage with the likes of John Gilligan all of those characters that became famous all of them as I wrote in one of my books went to and attended the the, the facto uh, Dunn Academy of crime so to speak Mr. Justice McMahon said that for the first nine months of 1980, Dunn had supplied a large part of the drugs used by the young people of Dublin. He was a controlling force in a major drug importing activity. They had a pretty tough upbringing, as you mentioned there, you know, growing up in tenements. A lot of them ended up in industrial schools and we know now these were not a very nice place to be as a young boy. And uh, Christy indeed spoke with Mary Raftery, uh, her amazing documentary kind of exposing what went on the industrial schools. A good point there. You make it, that generation of criminals, all of them, uh, with the exception only one I can think of who didn't go to an industrial school in the early days was John Gilligan. Um, but a lot of these young lads... All end, we're all sent into industrial schools, and we know what went on in them. Like Martin Cahill was there as well, and he uh, and so it was Christie. Christie uh, was a very big, strong guy, and he actually fought back against the system. But one of his brothers was killed. We believe killed. It wasn't that he was died accidentally, but he was killed in it's one of Hubert. these. Yeah, one of these appalling places. Um, one of the interesting, th and I remember interviewing Henry Dunn was one of the not more notorious armed robbers in the family. Um, who later commit the ultimate crime, same as some Larry was, don't get high on your own supply. They started taking drugs themselves and, and, and 
the rest is quite a tragic decline. But when he came out of prison, I remember interviewing him in 1992. And I was studying criminology at the time, so I was particularly interested in what his motivations were. And he spoke for himself. He was very close to Larry as well. And he said, look, we were brutalized in those places. When we came out of those places, we just wanted to tear the whole place down. And you can understand that. However, uh, your understanding and your empathy for criminals who were brutalized and were probably forced into the funnel that they took or the funnel they were pushed into in life, which towards criminality. Um, your sympathy does evaporate when they start taking sawn off shotguns and sticking it in the mouths of innocent men, women, uh, men and women working in post offices and banks and stuff like that. Um, and so they became very, very notorious. In fact, Henry was put away. Uh, for possession of firearms with intent to endanger life when he shot at police. So they were brutalized. Christie was a very, always a very highly intelligent guy. Um, and Christie was the first guy to become criminologically aware in the criminal community, so to speak, because he always talked about that his crimes and his family's crimes uh, were, as he said, economic crimes. And there was a certain amount of truth in that, that when they started and he let the lads out to, and he showed them the ropes, his younger brothers, like he had to look after them. In between times, he was in Dangan because his father was in prison and his mother was trying to work. Um, and uh, they, they went out and robbed food just to live. Uh, they robbed clothes. One of the other interesting things about the, the Dunn family and Larry, uh, Larry is the, the, one of the main figures here, is that they had, number one, they were always very, very dapper and very respectful and charming. And there were lads about town. Uh, and also they had great respect, and was in, which was instilled in them by their mother, to have respect for their local community. As in, they didn't victimize their neighbors and friends because everybody was in the same boat. Everybody was deprived. Everybody was hungry, uh, unemployed. There wasn't very much to steal in the 50s and 60s when these kids were growing up. Um, so they were the nearest thing, and I, I, you know, you use it from time to time to an ordinary decent criminal. And I know I, I often use that in relation to uh, Jerry Hutch and people like that. The nearest thing you get to a so-called ordinary decent criminal, they had certain standards. Uh, they weren't going around killing people. They weren't nailing people to floors. Uh, they weren't blowing people's heads off or kneecaps off or stuff like that. They were gentlemen crooks to a to a degree. There's this almost perfect storm of factors that goes on. You have, you know, a new Garda unit really clamping down on the armed robberies. Um, and then you have uh, things going on like the revolution in Iran, um, Russia in Afghanistan, uh, this idea of moving heroin as quickly as you could into Europe. Larry Dunn sees this going on. And what happens, Paul? Well, just to put a bit of context on that, um, the Duns, Christie and his brothers, all got involved in the hash business, which was starting to build as an in, you know, a drug of choice and a recreational drug here in Ireland. Um, a confluence of events occurs around like 79 and 80, whereby, you know, you have the, the Iranian uh, uh, revolution and the Shah's deposed and his power class turned their gold and valuables into heroin. Uh, which they're just on the border with Afghanistan, and they move it across the West, and quite literally there was a commensurate increase in drug addiction around that time, right across, all the way across the West over to America. At the same time, with the Russians in Afghanistan, and the same thing has happened several times since in Afghanistan, including when the Americans and the Allies were in there, um, the 
production of uh, heroin went through the roof because it's one of the main became one of the main heroin produce, producers in the world, Afghanistan. So you had this glut of this drug on the market. A lot of people didn't know about it, certainly didn't know anything about it here in Ireland. Um, the Duns are selling uh, hash. Larry and Shamey particularly, they are the guys who are particularly interested in this new drug because they had the contacts in the UK, same as Christie had. And they said, well, there was a drop off, there was a major seizure of hash and they suddenly didn't have any supply. So they decided, should we go for this new drug? And it was a market sample. Uh, and quite literally, that's where, in the October of, or the autumn of 1979, the first major shipment of heroin, that was minuscule compared to what there was going out there today, that was when the first shipment of heroin came into Ireland. Larry and Shamie Dunn were in charge of that. Uh, and it literally took off like a bushfire. Um, it took about a month for it to become a problem in the south inner city. And remember, nobody knew what this was. The people taking it were very innocent. The people selling it were fairly innocent themselves of, of, of the consequences of what they un, uh, had unleashed. It came to the north inner city and it took off in the period of a number of weeks. And people in the north inner city, where we're based here, um, talk about, in history, their social history, they talk about before the plague and since the plague. And the plague is the heroin epidemic that Larry and Shamie and the boys brought to Ireland. And one of the things that happened with heroin that's very important is that it underlined and exposed, if you need it to expose this fact, that the, the fact of the nexus and connection between socioeconomic de deprivation and hard drug abuse because it was in the most deprived places of the north inner city and the south inner city where heroin took off and then ghettoized those areas and created, uh, you know, despair on a level we've never seen. It created a human wasteland. In fact, just down the road from us here, again, I always say this is Larry Dunn's, uh, you know, I suppose a testament to his endeavours. Uh, and it's down at the corner of Blessington Street and Buckingham Street, there is this huge um, uh, statue and it's f like a form of a flame and it's called Home. And the the, the plaque at the, at the base of it is, if anyone walks by it, it's dedicated to the hundreds and hundreds of people from the north inner city who, who died as a result of the, the plague, as they call it. And they actually just, on the, on the plaque, it says, loved ones... Um, loved ones carried off by the plague. Uh, and that is Larry Dunn's legacy, effectively. It was an horrific time. For a good three years, you just had all these flat complexes flooded with heroin, Paul. And then you have Larry with this odd moniker, Larry doesn't carry. You know, he was not running around with the heroin himself. He had a group of generals, uh, a lot of kids doing the dirty work for him. And all the while, he was living this very flash life or manny suits, luxury cars. When he got banned from driving, for example, he then had a chauffeur to drive him around. But you have this huge conflict. He's still in these local areas, uh, being the big boy around town. But driving past families who have been destroyed by the scourge of heroin. 
The demonstration had been organized after a woman from the area found that her son had become a heroin addict after contact with the pushers there. My boy was carrying for them all over at 12 years of age. This is your boy now who's an addict? Yes. Well, he's getting treatment at the moment. He was carrying for them, he was, at 12 years of age. Literally by the week, the business was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and they started, the profits are prodigious. And this is where th- the first indicators of where we were seeing, about to see a shift in the whole flow of organised crime from bank robberies, because you can only do so many bank robberies, you can only rob a finite amount of money at a time, where you were going from, say, you could take 10 grand in in it from a cash heist, which would be big money in the 70s. But suddenly then the sky's the limit, £100,000, the equivalent of a million today, uh, could be made in, in a couple of weeks selling heroin. And he had this distribution model where he was cute enough to stay two steps away from thus that the term Larry doesn't carry. Uh, and his family became involved in it so heavily. But eventually, of course, you know, you have this undercover unit, the cops set up called the Mockies, Mock Junkies, uh, uh, Michael O'Sullivan, um, the legend, and, and Noreen O'Sullivan, um, our first female Garda commissioner, they were uh, two leading members of that unit, along with Noreen's husband, uh, Jim McGowan, was, a, was a, um, a, a, a member of this. And there were ad hoc cops who came on the street. There were based in Store Street and inner city stations. There were all kids. They wanted to go out and do something about it, and they started going out undercover and buying drugs. And one of the big, one of the big busts was ultimately that they took, took down the Dunn family in a very short period of time in the early 80s. And in tandem with all of this, Paul, you have um, community groups forming because you know these are angry parents who have lost kids as young as 12 to heroin. So they're deciding, look, we have to fight back. They went in violently. They just rushed in, charging in with their bats and pulling them out, not going in and asking them to leave properly. They just burst away. Everything happened so quickly and everybody was getting thrown out through windows, thrown out the doorway. People coming out covered in blood and then no police came on the scene then. There was kids getting pulled around. No, the kids shouldn't have been there. Yeah, but it led to the concerned parents against drugs. But again, there's an ambivalence there because the likes of the major criminal gangs after the Duns, for example, even though there was concerned parents against drugs and they were on the streets, pushers out and all this kind of stuff, they were infiltrated by the IRA in large places. And then the IRA started moving around. Members of the provisional IRA, particularly the Dublin Brigade, started uh, cashing in on this. So they started issuing licenses to people. You could sell heroin in a certain area if you wanted, but you had to pay the protection money and they would run out the other guys. So it was morally very ambivalent some of the aspects of of th- that campaign in parts, particularly in the south side of the city. But when the Duns, like Larry was caught uh, in the early 80s and he was convicted in 83, then he went on the run and, and he was extradited back in 85. And he said famously to uh, the, the a lot of protesters outside the court, um, he said, you know, if you think we're bad, when you see what's coming next, that has turned out to be one of the most prophetic and most profound utterances by any criminal in criminal history. And I've written history of organised crime in this country and I've been covering it for over 30 years and I've never seen anyone to tell the truth like and he was absolutely right. And what happened was, despite, you know, all the Duns became a convenient hanger on which to, to for everybody to hang their coat from, of blame on. Yes, they brought in the first shipments. Yes, Larry, Larry Dunn and Shamey and the other brothers were major players in the heroin and they gave it, it like it, they brought it, they set the beachhead, but that, somebody else would have done it anyway. But when they left the stage, by, I'm talking about 83, 84, they were off the stage. 
Um, and then subsequently, Christie is convic convicted of kidnapping, a kidnapping offence, and he ends up joining his brothers in the Nick. Um, other entrepreneurs had entered the business. It had, they had created the, the, the template, and then others jumped into the market. And who was one of the first guys? Uh, a fellow called Christy Kinnahan. Well-spoken, dapper, well-educated guy. We call him the Dapper Don for that reason. And he was fiddling around with heroin, and he was watching what they did. And he learned from their mistakes. But so did several other people, and literally through the generations in the north inner city and the south inner city and right across the city, heroin became more and more popular uh, uh, and more uh, widely used. And you had a lot more the Dunn, a lot more young Henry Dunn's and, and Christy Dunn's and, and, and uh, uh, Larry Dunn's coming up as entrepreneurs in the business and who are, to quote uh, Larry Dunn, were much worse than the Dunn's were themselves. And how was Larry eventually caught? Because he, he was pretty good at dodging the cops, wasn't he, Paul? Well, Felix McKenna, um, people may recall, was the first, he was the former chief superintendent of the Criminal Asset Bureau, a legend in the guards. He was a young cop at the time. Um, and I think he was the guy arrested. The, the, the guards got a tip off. They went to his house uh, in Raffarnham, in Nutgrove in Raffarnham. And they arrived, they were tipped off, that the, they probably had a snout in the camp as well, but they, they, they were tipped off that um, there might be gear in Larry's house. And when they arrived at the house, they found Larry with the gear, which was quite incredible. Remember, Larry doesn't carry, and Larry was arrested, and that was it. And, of course, the system, the entire system, wanted to put him away because he became the symbol. When his house, uh, you know, was was kind of swarmed by police and they found, I think it was 5,000 doses of heroin in a baby's pillow. Um, because of the laws at that time, Don is allowed to stay out of jail for two and a half years while he awaits his his trial or his charges. It's crazy. It is still crazy, Siobhan, because the same thing is happening today. But when he he was reading the the the, lead, the first trial he had was person paid off and the jury was hung jury so that was great. Then the second trial was looking he was he was noticing this isn't looking good, uh, so he decided to jump bail just or di disappear literally as the jury were practically coming back in with a verdict convicted him and he went away for two years. Anti-drugs campaigners were out in force at Green Street Court again today, as they have been every time Dunn's appeared. This time, they had something to cheer about, as one of Dublin's biggest drugs dealers was sent to jail. Dunn had actually been found guilty of the drugs charges two years ago. He'd skipped bail and fled to Spain, but was brought back last March for sentence. I suppose to go back to Larry Dunn's effect and his legacy, it wasn't just about the, junk, the, the heroin addiction and the, how it gave, you know, made life in these deprived, already deprived areas much more unlivable and unbearable. But it created a whole crime industry and a crime crisis, um, which I don't think we've ever... Once it arrives, it doesn't go away. And my thanks to the Irish Independent special correspondent, Paul Williams, who has written several books on the issue. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by myself, researched by Tabitha Monaghan with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from RTE Archives, RTE News at One and Independent.ie. 
If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.